to Counter Narratives, a podcast about multicultural heritage collections, storytelling, and representation in galleries, libraries, archives, museums, and beyond. This podcast is part of a larger project to highlight the work of Andrew W. Mellon, Cultural Heritage Fellows based at the Rare Book School. I'm your host, Azalea Camacho, and on this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about how we navigate and unpack counter narratives in the theme of disconnection and the way that it manifests itself in various areas of our institutions, such as through collections, instruction, and community engagement. And we are joined again by our same team from our last episode. So it's myself, Azalea, Talia, Ellen. Sandy and Amalia. So welcome back, everyone. Um, and we're going to start our podcast with a, a story by Talia about uh, an experience or a collection that she's had in her institution. Great. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to jump in talking about disconnection. When it comes to disconnection, I think about my own relationship to disability history. I grew up with low vision, but I never studied the histories of people who were like me. I also didn't learn Braille when I was young, but during the pandemic, I decided to change that. I worked on it for two years, and that's when I started looking into the history of tactile print. As it turns out, Braille wasn't the only system of writing invented for blind people. Actually, Louis Braille presented his system in 1829, but it wasn't officially adopted in the United States until 1917. That's nearly 100 years between invention and adoption, and in the meantime, lots of people were insisting that they had the perfect tactile system for blind people. One of the more famous options was called Boston Line Type. It was created by Samuel Gridley Howe, the director of the first school for the blind in the U.S., How created Boston line type to resemble print letters but raised off the page. He argued that his system was ideal for sighted educators because this way they wouldn't have to learn to read with their fingers. How might have had a point, but the reality was that his system didn't work well for blind people. It was difficult to read accurately and impossible to produce without specialized equipment. Braille, by contrast, could be written quickly using a simple slate and stylus. Anyone could do it, and so blind students started using Braille in secret. I say in secret because sighted instructors often insisted that their system be the sole one in use. A director at France's School for the Blind even burned tactile books written in systems that he didn't like. The result of all this controversy was chaos. Blind people had to learn how to read using five or six methods if they wanted to access similar books to their sighted peers. In 1955, a blind man named Robert Irwin wrote that a typical blind person in his generation would have been required to learn Boston Line Type, Moon Type, New York Point, American Braille, Revised Braille Grade 1 and a half, and Revised Braille Grade 2. He wrote, What an outcry could, would be heard in the country if the seeing public had been forced to make a similar series of accommodations. So Braille only came into use thanks to the blind people who advocated for a system that worked for them. I was really surprised to learn this, and I wondered if my library archives had collected any tactile print. As it turns out, we didn't have much, but our associate dean pointed me to a tactile print Bible published in the 1940s. He said he thought it was written in Braille, and the catalog record agreed. But when I pulled it out, I saw that it was actually printed in a system called New York Point. 
The Bible had a complicated history to tell in the format alone, but we weren't able to pass that history along to our students because nobody knew enough about it. What's more, a blind person would never have been able to find that book and learn its history. I started looking online for digital copies of historical tactile print, and honestly I didn't find much. As it turns out, tactile print is mostly held at specialized repositories, and it's not often digitized. Some archives don't go to the trouble of preserving tactile print at all, because they see it as a duplicate copy with the print version being the true source material. I had to wonder how much history is lost because we don't really understand how tactile print was created, or how it's used today. Can people with disabilities access their own histories? What role could or should libraries play in facilitating that access? I think these questions are important because people like me have been cut off from a rich set of histories that might otherwise have given them a sense of community and connection. Talia, thank you for sharing that um, experience and your story and talking about your institution. I also wondered, because I was preparing for this podcast, if we had any books in my institution of tactile print. And and honestly, I didn't even know how to go about finding that in our on our catalog or how to go about searching for it, who to talk to. Um, and I still don't know if we do have any and how to make it accessible to our students as well. And then you think about like archives and how do you make that rich history accessible to them as well? And how do I even include that into my instruction? It's a whole area that I think I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how to um, make these things accessible. And I think it's worthwhile having a conversation right now as we're having in this podcast. And I'm curious to know um, if any of you have any tactile print in your collections or if you're doing anything to engage with students with disabilities. Um, and how do you go about doing that in your campus or if there's any initiatives, things like that? Yeah, I um, thank you so much, Talia. I agree with Azalea's questions about um, what a big um, issue um, in terms of serving um, patrons with disability is. I know that um, at the law library, we had to follow the university system in terms of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it was something that was, I guess, implemented and enforced through our IT system, the information technology departments. And um, so their approach was to ensure that our websites had, could be um, screen read by various software for people with um, blindness or low vision. or um, And so the, the text could be like OCR'd and, and read. And, and so the, the machine would read the words that were on the screen. And that was a huge... Um, eye-opening for me in terms of like libraries and, and what we have to do to adjust and to make our information more accessible to the disability community. Um, and then we also started to talk about wheelchair access to the library in terms of our computer stations, terminals, having to have a space for a wheelchair patron to roll up onto the table, um, access to the bathrooms, ramps to the buildings, um, and, and all those kinds of things. And it just really opened my mind. Um, but I think that there needs to be more work done in terms of engaging with the knowledge and the history of folks with disability. Um, I know that we have a disability studies department at our campus. And I think 
um, that would be a good place for me to reach out to and, and learn more. Yeah, that's, um, Ellen, I can relate to that whole process with accessibility initiatives. Um, and one thing that I think is interesting about those initiatives, I think at university campuses is, um, I think often those, those initiatives kind of are run through the IT or the, um, that, that area. And they're often described, I think, in fairly technical terms, um, referring to sort of WCAG and ADA. And, um, and I think they're, that's, it's good for sure. I, I, there's been a lot of amazing work that was put into securing legislation like the ADA. But sometimes I wonder if we do these initiatives a disservice when we make them highly technical because I think that for some people they begin to feel it almost impossible to address. Um, and I sometimes wonder too if all that technical language creates space between um, the actual community and their actual needs. Like it, there's just layers of this kind of complex technical language and maybe there are simpler things that people could do that would be really meaningful on university campuses. Those are just questions I have that I, I don't really have answers to, um, but I, that's what comes to mind um, in some of this push in university campuses towards accessibility, which is also familiar for us as well. I agree that, you know, ITS or technology or your information technology um, department does take control of these types of things for students with disabilities or the community with disabilities. Um, but I wonder how often do they talk to, because we have the off, we have an office for student, students with disabilities. And I'm wondering how often did they talk to them to include them in, in these initiatives and procedures. Um, I know with the library, we do talk to them about, you know, accessibility, things like that, um, to the library and the resources. But I haven't seen them, seen these issues really talked about library-wide. So like in our library staff meetings or in our faculty meetings um, to, to make our resources more accessible or how we're really engaging with the Office of OSD and even students with disabilities and talking to them on what their needs are. And I think there's... It's, it's our theme, right? There's a disconnect with that community um, on our campus. Um, and I think there's initiatives, but they're very on the surface, right? So like how impactful and how helpful is it to our students or to our community with disabilities? So so I think about those things a lot of times. And, and like you said, Talia, like I, we don't have the answers or solution to it, but I think a, a good way to start is to have a conversation with with you know your office uh, if you have I'm sure there's a lot of campuses that have an office of students with disabilities and start connecting with them on what they really need versus thinking like oh you know ADA compliance and all of that stuff that ITS does which is technical um, or information technology um, but really meeting them where they're at and meeting their needs in in a different way which you're saying can be something more simple right so it doesn't have to be like technology driven. It is also about building community, right, with um, folks with ability and disability and breaking that divide, the disconnection, um, decentering ableist culture uh, and kind of breaking the minds or opening the minds of people who have the comfort of just everything's convenient because our whole kind of society is organized towards ableist people, people who can walk, people who can see. And... I think the disability justice movement has really been pushing against the unfairness of that standard and the way that it excludes people who are differently abled. And 
um, and you know people who have illness and people who have um, other types of physical challenges um, and how their experiences force us to think about how unsustainable ableist culture is. Um, and I think bringing that conversation into libraries and archives, and you know, we've been historically within modern practice, very um, print heavy, textual heavy, again, gearing toward the visual community. Um, and I think that, you know, how do we have that conversation to decenter the exclusivity of that way of knowing? And how do we have inclusive conversations with people who have different ways of, you know, experiencing information? Yeah, I think in, in my story, this, this came out. But for me, um, it, it was, I think, really important to do a lot of work on my own um, in interrogating my own thinking. Um, I mentioned this a little bit before, but um, even though I have low vision, I feel like throughout even my professional life, you know, my assumption has always been, well, I'm speaking to people who are sighted. If I'm if I'm doing a lecture, if I'm in, in whatever setting I'm in, everyone is just sighted. And therefore, I honestly didn't really think about accessibility practices myself. Like I would make slide decks and, um, you know, do presentations and then just assume that people could see um, because that was just what I accepted. And I think that it was really helpful for me um, in the sort of disability justice space. The thing that's commonly talked about is uh, are these two sort of models of disability. And there is, on the one hand, this medical model of disability, which essentially um, is this idea that the person is the problem. Um, their disability is the problem. They are the ones who do not fit into society, and they should go seek medical help to make themselves fit. And then in contrast, there's a social model, which um, really looks at structures in society and how those structures privilege particular people and how society kind of resists wanting to change those structures um, to accommodate disability. And for me, just honestly, having that, that kind of framework was really helpful in even thinking about myself um, and my assumptions about myself. Um, and I think that it opened up a lot of questions for me about my professional life and, you know, things that I could be doing differently, um, even just as a person who manages an institutional repository that's filled with print documents that are, frankly, many of them not accessible. And yet I'm also talking a lot about open access and the value of open access and how open access is so great. Um, and that, that kind of contradiction um, didn't occur to me until I, I started doing my reading and thinking about it. Um, I'm curious if you all have ever, um, in creating exhibits in particular or doing activities with students, if, if, there's, if you've ever had an occasion where you've thought about um, different forms of engaging with materials. Um, like um, Azalea, you had mentioned that we're very visually kind of focused on the archives and very print focused and um, and often, like, we don't really want things to be touched or to be, you know, examined in that way. Like, those, we're trying to preserve things and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm curious if that's ever, that kind of different mode of engagement has ever been something that you've had to consider or considered within the context of um, presenting things to students. For me, it's something I, I think about all the time. I, I think about it, but I feel like even for me in this profession, and I, it's, it's really important for me to engage with students, and I talk about it all the time, but even as you mentioned, like 
you're focused on, you know that you have a collection that's like a print. You have collections that are posters and visual and you have collections that are, and it's hard to like, you're in that world. And I don't have any resources available where I can turn to how to do that. But I do think about it. And when I do teach primary sources, I do talk about like using your senses. So not only like your visual, but like your touch and like what you smell um, when you're when you're engaging with primary sources. So it's not all about, uh, you know, what you read from it, but it's also engaging with it and and using your other senses um, to pick up what this piece is telling you. And so but I haven't really I probably need to talk to the office of OSD to see what I can or well, it's called the office of um, students with disabilities to see how I can engage and do a better job. And because there's definitely students with disabilities, I haven't. And I remember a specific time when a professor did tell me they had a student um, in the class um, that had a disability and I wasn't sure, luckily this, the professor was there to help me out on trying to engage. So we talked about it before, but again, it wasn't like in depth. I don't know how, if I had an impact on the student or if they grasped the concepts, you know? So for me, um, it's been difficult to try to, uh, find resources as a professional on how to engage or um, and and draw make those connections with um, students on campus. But I think that's an effort that I have to do um, and be conscious of it more on a regular basis than I have been in the past. I was just going to add that um, not limited to just exhibits, but I think for me, being at an institution that doesn't have any tactile print, as far as I know, I wasn't able to find any. We do have a large collection of artist books. And so if folks aren't familiar with artist books, um, they are books that kind of, they're works of art rather, that take the form of a book or play with the idea of what it means to read a book. So they're usually very interactive. They're very tactile. You know, it could be like a box that you have to open and there's a scroll inside and you have to pull it out and unwrap the scroll. And maybe there's like cutouts that you need to like look through or, or fold outs, pop-up books, all kinds of different functions. They're really unique and they're usually very labor intensive to make. So they're made in short runs and they're really hard to find or, you know, be able to afford outside of like a museum or special collections or an archive. So to me, that's kind of the a similar theme where we're encouraging students to interact with this object and to let their hands kind of lead, you know, rather than relying solely on, on the vision. Um, but I think that kind of sets a precedent for the importance of those skills and building those skills with primary sources. But absolutely, I think that this is an area where a lot of us could probably, um, you know, improve and be able to diversify our holdings and diversify the, um, the type of instruction that we can offer. One thing that came up to me, and I don't know how feasible this would be or if someone out there has might maybe already done something like this, but I wonder if this could be a partnership with like a makerspace um, or something like that to sort of 3D print perhaps some tactile material. And that would be really cool if you could talk a little bit about like the history of it and maybe have students really engage with the creation of those materials and then talk through, you know, what does this mean like in terms of um, diversifying the archive or how can... Yeah, like I think that would be a really cool opportunity to see happen. 
And I also think about that in ways where it's not only engaging, you know, with students with disabilities, but, you know, students that don't have disabilities to understand like the history and the importance of that and bring awareness to it and teaching that too. Um, I think that's like a very important thing as well. Um, so that way there's more awareness. So when they're out in whatever jobs there are, when that they understand that that's significant to be inclusive, because I think it's, it's, they don't think about it. This is actually a really contentious topic, I think, at our most uh, recent library-wide meeting, because, and I think, I think we all agree that I think our campus shockingly just doesn't do enough with for students with disabilities and I think even at the library um, we conducted a diversity equity inclusion and justice audit and you know our consultant concluded that in the area of accessibility we're a novice I think with a rating of one so we are aware we have you know we have a library guide we have a librarian that focuses on accessibility as part of her research but really, she, you know, she feels she's a one-man team. A lot of the materials that we access in a, in a lab that we have, um, she we purchase them through a grant she receives. So it's not really sustainable, nor is it like sort of built into the infrastructure of what we're doing. And I was shocked to find that I had no idea, right? Because when I came in, we had this equipment. So it is a really big issue, especially, I think, in a campus like ours where, you know, the issues are centered around you know, race, class, socioeconomic status. And this is like something that we really have to work on. Yeah, it was interesting to me. Um, I read uh, somewhat recently a, a book. It's called Academic Ableism. And um, part of what the book does is it even just looks at universities and um, the the way that universities represent themselves, even visually or symbolically. Like, for instance, if you think of a um, an Ivy League school, you often think of um, maybe lots and lots of stairs leading up to these sort of stone, you know, imposing doorways. And even just that symbolic representation is incredibly uh, inaccessible for somebody who would need to walk there. Or um, and a lot of the way I think academia constructs itself is to say that you know we are um, we are about the the quote unquote best and brightest you know like it's um, this idea of being exceptionally able bodied in a way and um, that's something again that I uh, speaking of a disconnect between personal experience and professional experience that also is something that I didn't really put together until kind of more recently thinking about it um, and and I think it also has manifestations throughout the archives as well and just uh, our default assumptions about who uh, would want to use the archives um, and who are who we're serving at the university yeah I, um, I think this is very interesting to me because when we are talking I, I realize that able-bodied centered research centers are really about reproducing a kind of um, kind of capitalist productivity in academic industrial complex type of stuff and and the reason why you know it's so exclusive is because they want to have a specific types of people who can be efficient in making um knowledge out of the, our materials as commodity within the academic industrial complex and so if you are you know um, differently abled or if you're a person of color or an indigenous person or you speak a different language it's like 
exclusive excluded from you because you know um you're not going to be able to make the knowledge in a way that's legible for consumption i guess i mean this is what i'm sort of kind of sensing that is a major structural problem within well academic libraries but i think we we have to come to terms with that and how it's part of an economy the reason why we we have this problem is is uh, how do we look at our work as trying to channel all of this energy into a particular economic purpose, but then understanding that that economic purpose is exclusive and it is exploitative, and how folks who are part of the disability justice movement are trying to wake us up to that problem. And so when we talk about racial justice, when we talk about feminist you know, justice and LGBTQ rights, like we need to also include disability justice in our frameworks of thinking about diversifying because it makes us erode and question the way that our work is so exploited, you know? And, um, and how do we break the model, right? And how do we break that industrial complex model? And so I think um, earlier someone was talking about like the ways in which we have to f explore ways to engage the multiple senses through the information that we have. And I remember I used to, f uh, my friend Vivian Wong, she was the one that turned me on on community archives. But the way she talked about community archives was like going to a mom and pop ramen shop. She was doing Asian American archives. <laughs> and she said that food is archives. And she, that was her lesson for all of us to experience information and history and culture through gastronomy. And so her teachings really inspire me today because I also think about dance as archive, kin kinetic movement as archive. And Kevin White from Oklahoma University, he has his old dissertation on that with Afro-Cuban, um, Afro-Mexican dance. And so I think it's such an opportunity, right, for us to like break open this one way of looking at our history in print or text, but like start to engage other senses and how it's not like a failure or anything, but it's just like opening the door to be more inclusive in the way that we want to present information or have our communities experience our histories. I think that even just looking at tactile print, um, one thing that uh, surfaces is just um, the origins of, for instance, a, a society that is very focused on vision. Like those things are culturally constructed, you know. So, um, in during the Enlightenment, you know, there was a great deal of emphasis on on vision as being the way of accessing truth. Um, and one thing that I think it's interesting about bringing some of these other um, these other representations of history, like things like dance or storytelling or an oral tradition, like all of these things are, um, at least in part, you know, these are other cultural modes of understanding the world that tend to get excluded if you are in a very um, text-heavy, text-centric system um, and you're teaching history through that lens, um, you are kind of or we are kind of, you know, reinforcing again that that idea that this is how you understand the world, um, and this is how one um, interprets the world within an academic setting. So what I was going to say, I think it it is really important to, as Ellen was saying about engaging other senses like touch, 
and like you can get a lot of information from a primary source by touching the paper or touching like also how Sandy mentioned the artist books like touching them seeing what they're about and you can also get more information like also like oral histories things like that um even smelling (laughs) um some of the 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 materials so I think that's a way that we can start to um, engage students in thinking about other ways of, you know, it's not just the text, but there's also information in the way you touch things and the way you feel things and sense things. These are real life examples of challenges cultural heritage professionals face when working with multicultural collections. Even as librarian and archivists from marginalized identities, we are often forced to function within environments or institutions that perpetuate some of the dominant narratives that we personally fight against. We may not have a solution or answers through this podcast. However, we would like to ignite conversations within our profession to bring awareness of these challenges. And that wraps up our talk today on counter narratives. We want to thank our guests for being with us today. This episode was brought to you by RBS Mellon Foundation. All of the guests across different time zones, Ali Alvis, book historian and cataloger at Type Punch Matrix, and our podcast media consultant, Kelsey Brown. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Counter Narratives. Until next time. My body. It's okay.